Some people have a harder time with traveling to new places, new and different places, than other people do. Recently, a friend on Facebook posted actual complaints received by the Thomas Cook Travel Agency from their dissatisfied customers. Among them, on my holiday to India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. And another person complained, the beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. Strange places can be disorienting and disturbing. All the more so when you did not choose to go there, when all you want is to go home. But going home is not an option. All the more when you are in exile. And this is what the people of Israel are coming to grips with in today's Jeremiah passage. One Saturday, 22 years ago this month, Berkeley firefighters thought they'd completely extinguished a five-acre grass fire in the Berkeley Hills. They had not. Sunday morning, the fire reignited and driven by hot, dry, 65-mile-an-hour winds, it spread rapidly. It quickly overwhelmed local and then regional firefighters. The Oakland firestorm of 1991 eventually burned 1,520 acres, destroying 3,354 single-family homes and 437 apartment and condominium units. Many of us here today not only remember the fire, but also knew people who were impacted, many people who could not go home. Author Sue Bender reports that a week after this terrible fire, she met a woman named Helen on the street in Berkeley. Helen walked up to Bender and told her how much she enjoyed Bender's book, Plain and Simple, about Bender's experience with the Amish. Helen said, we lost our home in the fire. We lost everything. She took a breath and said, I loved Plain and Simple. I used to keep it next to my bed, and I'm going to reread it when my life is normal again. When my life is normal again, these are the words of someone in exile. All of us find ourselves in situations we did not and would not choose, or maybe we did choose it, but we had no idea it would turn out like this. There's nothing we can do to change it, or at least not quickly. Maybe eventually things will change for the better. Maybe eventually there will be healing, but not now. Now we long for normal. We long for home. Jeremiah offers exiles of every time and place some advice. Today we read a part of a letter he sent to Jerusalem to his compatriots who had been hauled off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar as part of the Babylonian king's plan not just to conquer, but to humiliate the nation of Judah. Jeremiah's letter contradicts the predictions by other prophets who say this whole exile nightmare will last maybe a couple of years. Jeremiah says it will last not years, but generations. The really shocking part is that he says, get used to it. Stop living out of suitcases. Put down roots. Build a community in this distant place 
that is so very far from home. Don't keep waiting for life to get back to normal because this is your new normal. Those must have been extremely hard words to say and even harder words to hear. Having been conquered, humiliated, and deported by force, the Judean exiles are bitter and vengeful, as well as homesick. They don't speak the language. They're surrounded by heathens and their heathen practices. They don't have any Rick Steves guide to daily life. They are painfully aware that they aren't in control of their lives and that the old answers don't work anymore. That sums up exile, doesn't it? It's the place where and the time when the old answers don't work anymore. When we're in the midst of exile, most of us just want to escape. How can anyone embrace Jeremiah's message as good news? Build houses, plant gardens, get on with our lives? And not only can we, but should we? First, it depends. For most of us here today, I'm talking about a metaphorical sort of exile. But with our associate pastor, Diana, leaving this week for Israel-Palestine to harvest olives in the Keep Hope Alive project, it's a good time to remember that exile is a real condition in which millions of real people live. When I speak this morning about embracing Jeremiah's message, the context is important. The serenity prayer comes to mind to me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When people have been separated unjustly from their home and their history, decentering and disorienting them to the point of threatening their identity, it's not something that we, people of faith, serenely accept. And even in the metaphorical arena, we would need to be very careful what we tell people simply to accept. Jeremiah is not advocating complacence in the face of an ongoing justice here. He's not advocating inaction. In fact, he says, do something. Plant, eat, live, marry, have kids. Don't just accept this situation. Flourish in it. Mix it up with the locals and pray. Pray for the very people who are holding you captive. Now, this admonition to pray is radical, and not just because it's so very hard to pray for your oppressors, as Diana talked about with the kids. It's radical because the people had imagined that their God, Yahweh, worked and was available to them only in Israel and Judah, on God's home turf. Jeremiah is telling the people, this isn't true. The temple in Jerusalem might be destroyed, but God doesn't need it. The people don't need it. They have access to God, even in Babylon. God is at work always and everywhere, in strange and foreign places and in strange and foreign people. God is with them. God is with us in the midst of exile. Our exile, our experience of finding ourselves in a place in which the old answers don't work, might come in the form of a divorce or the loss of a loved one, 
job loss or disappointment, economic challenges, aging, loss of health. It could be any situation in which what you used to do, the way you used to interact or cope, no longer works. And all you want is for things to get back to normal. These times deserve to be grieved. And Jeremiah is not telling the Judeans not to grieve. But also, the Judeans, like us, need to know that no matter how far they have traveled from home, God is there. They, like us, need to hear the word of the Lord not only in the midst of suffering and in the midst of worry and change, but in spite of it. How does that word appear? In Sue Bender's first encounter with Helen after the Oakland fire, Helen said, I have to trust something good will come out of this. I think something good will come out of this. Helen didn't say that she wasn't grieving. Everything, every family photograph, a clock built by her husband, all the hand-knit sweaters that had kept her warm, all were gone. The fire forced me to look at what really matters, said Helen. After this, Bender ran into Helen a few times a year in Berkeley, and Bender told Helen that she used that particular line in her talks about her book, that that the fire had forced Helen to look at what really matters. I have to tell you, said Helen, a great deal of good has come out of the fire. Bender invited Helen to her house to tell her more, and the next day before a meeting with Helen, Bender ran across an observation by Thomas Merton, the American Trappist monk. When a monk uses a begging bowl to receive alms, it's with the understanding that the monk accepts with gratitude, whatever is given. This is a difficult idea, and I'll confess to you that I find it personally challenging. No matter what you're given, accept and feel grateful. But Bender fleshes this out with Helen's story. Helen noticed things, like the fact that her favorite recipes, the ones that she'd shared with friends, were returning to her. Helen worked as a pattern designer, and her favorite creations for clothing patterns were returning to her, too. It's a constant process of asking myself what is important, Helen said. I didn't have to do that before the fire. It was as if I was on a moving escalator at the L.A. airport, always racing through my life, having fun, but not really stopping to savor or distill what was important. It's all out there. Everything I need, says Helen, but I didn't see it because I was going too fast. I think that's one of the gifts of this fire experience, she added. It fine-tunes my attitude about the remainder of my life. Noticing and even finding gratitude in the midst of exile? It's far from easy, but it is one of the ways that God appears to us is present with us. It is one of the gifts God gives us to cope. Recent research has shown that people with gratitude tend to be happier and more satisfied with their lives, more trusting and more generous. And it isn't that people are grateful because they're happy. It's the other way around. Joanna Macy writes, 
Gratitude pulls us out of the rat race. It shifts our focus from what's missing to what's there. Not only are we more likely to return favors, but we're more likely to assist complete strangers. And this echoes what Helen experienced. And isn't it fascinating that in the healing story in Luke, only one of the men that Jesus healed, the Samaritan, the one in exile from his country, not just far from home, but living among people who despised him, only he showed gratitude. Perhaps, perhaps it's because his exile fine-tuned his attitude for the remainder of his life. Jesus describes this display of gratitude as faith. For us, for people of faith, gratitude is noticing God at work. Trust in God and gratitude go hand in hand. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In its welfare you will find your welfare, says Jeremiah. There's another reason this is radical. The Hebrew word for welfare here is shalom, which means peace and prosperity and justice and well-being all rolled into one. Jeremiah is saying, have I got news for you? You are not the only people that God cares for and blesses. Those Babylonians are also God's people. You're thinking of them as enemies? They are, in fact, your neighbors. It doesn't even matter that the Babylonians have a statue of Marduk in the middle of their city. The one true God is the God of Babylon, too, whether they know it or not. In the midst of exile, in the midst of feeling disconnected and disoriented, Jeremiah is saying, you are more connected than you think. The well-being of your enemy is your own well-being. This has colossal implications for us in our world, in our nation today. What does this look like in our current national debate over funding the government, over health care, over how we will function as a democracy in this strange and foreign land of increasingly polarized politics. What does it look like for our churches when we find ourselves exiled from what used to be called Christendom and living in a culture that views us with suspicion, if not hostility? Among other things, it calls churches to move beyond our walls, beyond maintaining our institution beyond doing only for ourselves. It is a call for an approach that is outward and expansive. This is a direction we've been moving here at First Presbyterian Church for a long time. And in particular, recently, we're striving to figure out, with God's help, what it means right here in San Anselmo, what it means that our well-being is bound up with that of our neighborhood. This is where we are. This is where God has brought us, to a time and a place where organized religion is increasingly irrelevant. And God says, don't just survive, flourish. Several verses beyond 
what we read in Jeremiah this morning. God offers a word of hope. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Ultimately, Jeremiah offers us hope, but not an easy, quick-fix kind of hope. It's a hope that might come through unexpected encounters. It might come through strange places and surprising people. It's a hope that requires noticing, gratitude, openness, and faith. Last week, someone sent me an email about the ongoing life for Palestinian olive olive farmers who, since 1967, have lost 33 times all the trees in Central Park in New York City to encroaching settlements. And then he added, hope is the ability to hear the music of the future. Faith is the ability to dance to that music now. May it be so for everyone in exile, and for you and for me. Amen. Amen.